All right, we're going to finish the book of Matthew today. So if you'd open up to Matthew chapter 28, if you don't have a Bible, these folks walking down the aisles will give you it. And if you don't even own a Bible, you're welcome to keep it. It's our gift to you. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Before I have you uh, stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I wanted to kind of share with you um, how the Lord put this together through the week for me and how it was a blessing to me. Uh, and, and the passage we're going to take a look at is a great commission. Uh, this was a, a kind of an exciting week. Uh, on Wednesday, I had the privilege to go into inner city LA uh, to a church. There are about 100 pastors there, uh, mostly Hispanic, some black pastors. Uh, I was, you know, I, I made the comment, I, I know what it's like to have be a pair of white shoes with a brown suit, and everybody laughed. Uh, I was a minority there. 90% of the service was in Spanish. My, my message that I had shared was interpreted. Um, and these pastors in the inner city, as I was driving by, just streams and streams of homeless and just seeing the decline uh, of our state, and especially in the Los Angeles region and where this church was located. And you had pastors out there crying out to God, wanting to see a change. And, uh, and, and they're excited about what we're doing with Church United, taking them up to the Capitol and engaging the church into this process and making a difference in the state and, 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 and having, coming up with answers to the problems that is, are being thwarted on us in this state. And they're, they're crying out for answers. And as I started to share with them a constitutional republic and seven articles of the U.S. Constitution and the pre- preamble and going through the Declaration of Independence and talking about the consent of the governed, how these are biblical principles and laying them out. And they were so moved by it. And at the conclusion of it, I said, if you want to understand the biblical nature and to be able to teach the Constitution and Declaration of Independence from a biblical perspective, uh, I've already done the studies on Wednesday night called the American Legacy Series. I'll give you the website. The interpreter says it. I start to do the website. Every single pastor in the room takes their pencil. They're writing it down. They're asking me to stop. They're writing. It's not like it's hard. G-C-C-T-O.com. American Legacy. They're going, okay, okay. And then following that, not only do they all write it down, but many of them came up and a number of them came up and said, if you need anyone to translate it into Spanish, we can help you. My comment to all of them was I don't care if the entire state of California is speaking Spanish as long as you're protecting religious liberty, as long as you're protecting a, a constitutional republic, as long as the Apostle Paul said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for Christ has, Christ has set you free. And I, I know a lot of you are like, I don't want to speak Spanish because you don't know it. But they, they, uh, they, they, they got it. And my comment to them was, the likelihood is I've descended from, from Irish slaves, my background, and we're all immigrants to the United States for the most part. And, and the reality is we don't want to bring to this country what we left behind. And they were cheering. They were so excited. And so that was Wednesday. And then uh, we had a couple of events. And then Saturday morning yesterday, uh, we had the Valley to Shore uh, men's breakfast, which is all the Calvary chapels in the area. We got together, four pastors speaking. I was third in the lineup. It was Pastor Pete, Pastor Dave, myself, and then Pastor Brian Laspata from Malibu. And, and following that, I had to drive back into the inner city for another 250 pastors that were meeting at the Union Church, downtown LA, which used to be the uh, Japanese Congregational Church, and then they changed it to the Union Church, still Japanese. Uh, but one of the things that happened, interestingly enough, about the Union Church, um, when it was a, titled the Japanese Congregational Church, it had been there since 1908. They've already celebrated their 100th anniversary, coming up to 110th anniversary. On December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, within 48 hours, all the Japanese in the area were put into internment camps. And so that church in downtown LA became basically uh, a storage unit for all their possessions. And the church was locked up and it kept all their possessions while they were put in internment camps. 
And then their sons went off to fight in the war while their families remained in these internment camps in, I think it was Wyoming and Dakota, something up in the northern region by Canada. And then they came back and they began to minister. And they've been doing that for 110 years in this inner city. And there's 200 plus pastors. One of them in particular was Fred Berry, uh, amazing guy. He and his wife, uh, Wilma, were heading it up. And I came in and I shared in the same response when I talked about it. They wrote it down. They wanted it. And, and they're, they're interested and so excited about it. And we're putting a, an event together to go to Sacramento in May. Um, we've been going around the area trying to get funding for it to send pastors for a 24-hour period, not only to meet their assembly members and their state senators, but to be educated in this constitutional republic and make a difference in their state. And they're so excited about it. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and a lot of you were like, "Well, okay, you know, man, I'm, I'm stoked by it. And, and as we went through this, and I'm seeing this happen, the, the part that really ministered to me was at the men's breakfast. And each of the pastors had a great presentation on Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to offer your, li- offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing. It's your spiritual act of worship to the Lord. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as, and as I was thinking of this verse, and one of the, the teachings on it was by a man named Brian Lespada, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Malibu. And he said something so profound. He said, you know, in, in our culture... In our culture, we've come to a place where we say it's, it's my truth and it's your truth. And there isn't my truth and your truth. There's truth. And, and, he, and he teaches over at, at Pepperdine, he teaches Bible studies there, and the young people have this idea of what they call uh, social justice. There's, not, there's no such thing as social justice. There's justice. You see, social justice is what the society deems to be just. God's not confused by what is just and what isn't just. God isn't confused by what truth is and what truth isn't. He, he is truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And so in the passage of scripture, we're going to take a look at, and then I'm going to show you a video. I pray that it, it just really inspires you um, to see this passage, which is called the Great Commission in a whole new light. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Jesus is resurrected. We celebrated that. Everyone was thrilled. Now he is getting ready to go sit at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. But he's meeting with the the disciples. He told them, I will go before you. Do you remember that? I will go before you. I will go. But where was he going? Galilee. Let's pick up at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into? To the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, and by the way, the word all in the Greek means all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, and by the way, in the Greek, the word go means go, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all things. There's that word all again, all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, always even to the end of the age. So that's the Great Commission. We're going to take a look at it, but we're going to pray first. Lord, please, I pray your richest blessings upon all who are present by your living word touching deep into our hearts to cause us to come alive to your word that we would see in this Great Commission our own lives entwined in it as we have been redeemed and called. And we thank you for this commission. We embrace it and we rejoice in its 
application. And so, Lord, give us wisdom on how to do that. And I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. You know, there is, uh, in Christendom today, and I, I tire of seeing this, they say the, the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God according to the original manuscripts which no longer exist. And that is, that is a secularist way of trying to diminish the authority of the word of God. Let me just clearly say to all of you present, this is inerrant and it's inspired and it is the word of God. Amen. And heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will not. It will remain. And that same word that spoke the heavens into existence and holds us together is, is his word. And when he gives his word, it is truth. And it's that simple. There's not your truth. There's not my truth. There is truth. And, and we're either living the truth or we're living a lie. But we're in a society today where we're watching so much implode around us. And this great commission has been truncated. I call it the truncated gospel. And it's been diminished, and we're going to take a look at it. But before we do that, uh, there's a man that's so close to coming to Christ. I just pray he one day realizes that his Messiah has already come. But he is a wonderful teacher, and I want you to take a look at Dennis Prager as he shares some stuff. Do you believe that good and evil exist? The answer to this question separates Judeo-Christian values from secular values. Let me offer the clearest possible example, murder. Is murder wrong? Is it evil? Nearly everyone would answer yes, but now I will pose a much harder question. How do you know? I'm sure you think murder is wrong, Hmm. but how do you know? If I asked you how you know that the Earth is round, you would show me photographs from outer space or offer me measurable data. But what photographs could you show, what measurements could you provide that prove that murder or rape or theft is wrong? The fact is, you can't. There are scientific facts, but without God, there are no moral facts. In a secular world, there can only be opinions about morality. They may be personal opinions or society's opinions, but only opinions. Every atheist philosopher I have read or debated on this subject has acknowledged that if there is no God, there is no objective morality. Judeo-Christian values are predicated on the existence of a God of morality. In other words, only if there is a God who says murder is wrong, is murder wrong. Otherwise, all morality is opinion. The entire Western world, what we call Western civilization, is based on this understanding. Now, let me make two things clear. First, this doesn't mean that if you don't believe in God, you can't be a good person. There are plenty of kind and moral individuals who don't believe in God and Judeo-Christian values. But the existence of these good people has nothing, nothing to do with the question of whether good and evil really exist if there is no God. Second, there have been plenty of people who believed in God who were not good people. Indeed, more than a few have been evil and have even committed evil in God's name. 
the existence of God doesn't ensure people will do good. I wish it did. The existence of God only ensures that good and evil objectively exist and are not merely opinions. Without God, we therefore end up with what is known as moral relativism, meaning that morality is not absolute, but only relative to the individual or to the society. Without God, the words good and evil are just another way of saying, I like and I don't like. If there is no God, the statement murder is evil is the same as the statement, I don't like murder. Now, many will argue that you don't need moral absolutes. People won't murder because they don't want to be murdered. But that argument is just wishful thinking. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao didn't want to be murdered, but that hardly stopped them from murdering about a hundred million people. It is not a coincidence that the rejection of Judeo-Christian values in the Western world by Nazism and Communism led to the murder of all these innocent people. It is also not a coincidence that the first societies in the world to abolish slavery, an institution that existed in every known society in human history, were Western societies rooted in Judeo-Christian values. And so were the first societies to affirm universal human rights, to emancipate women, and to proclaim the value of liberty. Today, the rejection of Judeo-Christian values and moral absolutes has led to a world of moral confusion. In the New York Times in March 2015, a professor of philosophy confirmed this. He wrote, What would you say if you found out that our public schools were teaching children that it is not true that it's wrong to kill people for fun? Would you be surprised? I was. The professor then added, The overwhelming majority of college freshmen view moral claims as mere opinions. So then, whatever you believe about God or religion, here is a fact. Without a God who is the source of morality, morality is just a matter of opinion. So, if you want a good world, the death of Judeo-Christian values should frighten you. I'm Dennis Prager. So when you use the term social justice, it simply means based on what society deems to be just, and that's going to be on the majority rule. And so if you're in the majority and you decide this is going to be social justice, then it's going to be the opinion of those who hold it, and that's why you march, and that's why you have presentations. And if you can sway the populace to agree with you in this idea of being useful idiots, then you can, you can stand in opposition to it because it's a moving target. But the reality is, as I said earlier, there's not social justice. There's just justice. Either he is God or he is not. And you can't have metaphysical concepts without a God. Meaning, where do you get moral concepts if all we're dealing with is a physical realm? So you can't definitively say that murder is wrong. You can't definitively say that rape is wrong. You can't definitively say any of these things that we consider wrong to be wrong especially if we look at this idea of, of evolution 
and it's the survival of the fittest, and I've said this before, rape in that sense would be something that would be beneficial because your species would continue. So where are you going to have the basis for saying it's wrong when really you're looking at it as survival of the fittest and there are no moral absolutes? If it becomes advantageous to you, then you just change what is considered just. Is anyone tracking me on this? So why do I bring all this up as we come into the Great Commission? What is my point? My point is this. In the passage, Jesus came and he spoke to them and he said, all authority. And I ask you, I told you the word all means all. All authority is his. He is God. He declares what is right and what is wrong. We are his creatures. We are subject to our creator. He is a benevolent, kind God, but all authority has been given to him in heaven and on this big blue marble, the earth. It's all his. We saw in Genesis 1, 27 and 28 that the, the, that, you know, the chief aim of man is not to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as wonderful as that sounds. The chief aim of man is to have dominion and to cultivate, to be fruitful and to multiply that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that, that, that the Lord brings in his covenant people to make a difference in the world around us. And so when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and then he says this to us, go therefore. Go therefore what? He makes it very clear in this great commission, make disciples of all nations. Nations. Governing structures with boundaries and borders. People who covenant together, where you get the term commonwealth, this idea of, of a compact, and the, 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 this, this idea of the Mayflower compact, this idea that we covenant together in a common set of laws to govern us, and we agree together to do that. Now, who sets those laws? The foundation of those laws is based on what is the foundation of what we believe. We hold these truths to be self-evident that there is a creator, that all men are created equal, endowed by that creator with certain inalienable rights. And that is the purpose of government to protect those rights. Now that statement was never before heard or echoed on the face of the earth. It was prior to that. It was all oligarchies, monarchies, fascism, socialism, communism, and the idea that their justice is dependent on the majority rule without God. Hundreds of millions of people died. And you can move that target But when there's an absolute that we are endowed by our creator with these inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of virtue or happiness, for this reason, governments were instituted among men for the preservation of those God-given rights. That's why every Western culture has been instrumental in abolishing slavery. Every Western culture has done the child labor laws. They've done civil rights. They've done women's suffrage. We can go on and on and on because they see the value of humanity based in the moral absolutes of scripture. But where are we today? We've removed God from the equation. We're watching the moral decline of our nation. California, which was once the great promised land of America, we now, of all those on welfare in the entirety of the 50 states, we have 30% of all welfare recipients. We, 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 I think we're close if we don't already lead the nation in poverty. We have the highest taxes. We have the highest debt. 
We have killed more of our unborn children than Hitler killed people in the Holocaust. We, we are watching as our roads are imploding. We're watching as our infrastructure is struggling. Our schools are struggling. And, and some can say, well, I can show you facts. Figures lie and liars figure. If you do your homework and you look at the bottom line, you will see that California schools, are, our graduation rates are low. And our, there are teachers in this room that are working their tails off to make a difference. It doesn't rest with that. It, it, the higher up it goes, the more troublesome it becomes. And, and we're struggling and we want to make a difference. And the question is, as Christians, we're called to this. And we say, what do we do? What do we do? What is this great commission and where have we missed it? Because as I said to the, the, the men on Saturday, I, I, I use the statistics that you've heard often that there's Calvary Chapel started in 1967, teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, presenting the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, that, that you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That if, if you, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your tongue, or you, did Jesus, I, you got it. I, we said it earlier, and I've already confused because I had it totally memorized different. You will be saved. And the presentation of that gospel is very clear. And I, I preach that every Sunday to the best of my ability. However, Calvary Chapel's been doing that for 51 years and we haven't engaged in these mountains of cultural influence. So while we've experienced 10,000% growth since 1967, conversion growth, not transfer growth, and there's 350 Calvary chapels south of Van Nuys, we would think, well, what is the significance? Because in 1967, we had the fifth largest GDP, the fifth greatest economy on the face of the earth. We were the, we were the state of the future. This is where you came if you want to start a business. This is, we had the secondary school system that was the envy of the world, a water delivery system that was the envy of the world. We produce more cotton in the San Joaquin Valley than all the southern states combined. And here we are 51 years down the road, and what do we have? We now have the ninth largest GDP. We lead the nation in taxes. We lead the nation in abortion. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills. No-fault divorce. Our infrastructure is imploding. Our water delivery system. It's not that we don't get enough water. We just don't store it. And so we look at it and we say, what, what is wrong? What's happened? What has happened? And it comes down to this. What is the Great Commission? And, and the struggle, and I shared this with the pastors when I was speaking both times in the inner city and as I shared with the men on Saturday. And I'll be in Fresno on Wednesday and I'll be in Marietta on Tuesday and I'm going up and down the state speaking to pastors. And we want to take them to Sacramento and they're all excited about it. But I shared with them, I said, when I got to Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, it gets to the back of it where it says, blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled. And they say all kinds of evil for my namesake, blessed are you, Right? And I, I tell him, 25 years behind the pulpit, I'd never face it until I stepped out of the pulpit and ran for office. Now, why is it that I got reviled and beat up when I ran for office? Why is, why is the enemy or why is there tension towards somebody stepping into a cultural mountain of influence? Because they're content you just staying behind the box and thinking that your commission is just to have people raise their hand. And if I can get you to raise your hand and contribute a tithe and we build our buildings and our budgets and our baptisms, we're successful while the entire culture implodes. But Jesus doesn't say that in the Great Commission. He doesn't say make hand raisers. He said disciple nations. He doesn't even make it personal. Now the gospel's personal. Jesus died on the cross. If you were the only one on the earth, he would have died for you. His death on the cross paid the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. That's true. But he, he, he saved you to employ you. 
You see, we're at a place now where we are preaching a truncated gospel. We've limited the gospel. Justification without sanctification. Faith without works. Privilege without duty. Grace without law. Holiness without effort. As long as you write the check and keep the wheels spinning, the pastor feels successful. But I'm not Captain Steubing of the love boat. We have, we have a mandate, a commission that we're called to do. And when he says go, he means it. And as you look at this, you think, what do I do? I want to share with you some things just to open our eyes a little bit. This steepening decline is, is evident in the family of this moral decline of our nation. And, and it's, it's also seen in education and morality. And, and I, I love what Dennis Prager listed there. And, and I have some more thoughts on his behalf. He says, as one who loves America, not only because I'm an American, but even more so because I know, not believe, I know that, American, that the American experiment in forming a decent society has been the most successful in history. I write the following words in sadness with few exceptions. Every aspect of American life is in decline. He says decay is the word. He says nearly half, 48% of American children are born to a mother who is not married. 43% of American children live without a father in the home. About 50% of Americans over 18 are married compared with 72% in 1960. Americans are having so few children that the fertility rate fell to a record low 62.9 births per 1,000 women in 2013. And in an increasing number of states, there are now more deaths than births. The decline in education, he writes, compared with nearly all of American history, the average American school teaches much less about important subjects such as American history, English grammar, literature, music, and art. Instead, schools are teaching much more about social justice environmentalism, and sex. He says, most universities have become secular seminaries for the dissemination of leftism. Moreover, aside from indoctrination, students usually learn little. One can earn a BA in English at UCLA, for example, without having read a single Shakespeare play. To the extent that American history is taught beginning in high school and often earlier, American history is presented as a history of an immoral nation characterized by slavery, racism, colonialism, imperialism, economic exploitation, and militarism. Not of a country that more than any other has been the beacon of freedom to mankind and the country that has spent more treasure and spilled more blood to liberate other peoples than any other nation. He said, whatever one's position is on same-sex marriage, one must acknowledge that at the core of the argument for this redefinition of marriage is that gender doesn't matter. Marriage is marriage and gender means nothing. The argument goes, so too, whether children are raised by a mother or father or two mothers or two fathers doesn't matter. A father has nothing unique to offer a child that a mother can't provide and vice versa. Why? Because for the first time in recorded history, gender is regarded as meaningless. Indeed, increasingly, gender doesn't even exist. It's merely a social construct imposed on children by parents and society based on the biological happenstance of their genitalia. When signing up for Facebook, one is offered nearly 90 options under gender. In various high schools across the country, boys are elected homecoming queen. A woman was recently kicked out of Planet Fitness for objecting to a man in the women's locker room. She was accused of intolerance because the man said he felt that he was a woman. At least two generations of American young people have been taught that moral categories are nothing more than personal preferences. 
Recently, an incredulous professor of philosophy wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times titled, Why Are Children Don't Think There Are Moral Facts? In it, he noted, without fail, every value claim is labeled an opinion. This extends to assessing the most glaring of evils. Since the Nazis thought killing Jews was right, there's no way to know for sure whether it was wrong. It's the Nazis' opinions against that of the Jews and anyone else who objects. That one hit me. There are no moral truths because there's no longer a religious basis for morality. More than the Enlightenment, it was the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, which was one of the reasons American Christians were different from most European Christians that guided the founders and other American values. Not anymore. Instead of being guided by a code of code higher than themselves, Americans are taught to rely on their feelings to determine how to behave. Instead of giving moral guidance, children are asked, how do you feel about it? If you acknowledge that American society is in decay, it is your obligation to fight to undo it. If you can't acknowledge that American society is in decay, you are providing proof that it is. I share that because the truncated gospel in my estimation is this idea that when we read the Great Commission that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We are now concluding a systematic study through the entire Gospel of Matthew, and you have participated in that for these many, many, many weeks. We have learned that socialism is a violation of two commandments, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet. We've learned that capitalism is taught in the scriptures and the parable of the talent. We've been taught about sexuality as we've gone through all types of aspects in relation to this. We have learned everything you can possibly learn in regards to the entirety of society because Jesus taught his disciples and now we too have been taught by his word. And the fascinating thing is the scriptures speak to the entirety of society. And so when we come to this great commission, we want to truncate it to the simple aspect of saying, do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And do you receive him as your Lord and Savior? And if you do, please raise your hand. And everyone raises their hand. We say, praise the Lord. God bless you. I see your hand. Have a wonderful day. And now we're part of a society. But God forbid we teach that we are supposed to go and make disciples of nations, boundaries, borders, governing structures to transform the world in accordance with Genesis 1, and 28, which is the mandate of man. The Great Commission, I love this author, he says the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is just as universal and comprehensive. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The basis for preaching the gospel is thus established. The total comprehensive authority of Jesus Christ over every area of life in heaven and on earth. Now, if the gospel is only concerned with the salvation of individual souls, then such a foundation is a serious overkill. For snatching souls out of sin and hell, Christ doesn't need to establish the fact of his comprehensive authority. We are saved individually by his sacrifice on the cross. Amen? Why does he need to mention his total power if the intent, the content, and the end of his gospel were strictly individual? Why does he add nations? Such language of comprehensive claims makes sense only if it is followed by a language of comprehensive requirements. 
i.e., if the gospel he requires them to preach is just as comprehensive, covering every area of life, including the personal life and salvation of the believer, but not limited to it. And indeed, the rest of the Great Commission has only a small reference to the individual aspect of the gospel. Baptize them. And this is only as a means in the context of a greater comprehensive worldwide focus, disciple the nations. In the Greek, in the original Greek, it says, teach them to do everything I have commanded you. And the text, make disciples, the exact meaning is disciple the nations. That's the exact meaning in the Greek. Disciple the nations. As nations, not as individuals taken out of the nations. Governing authority, this is the Noahic covenant. This is the second covenant of the five that you see in the Old Testament pertaining to God's people. The nations as nations as comprehensive entities must be discipled actively to obey what Christ commanded. Everything of it, including the Old Testament. That's why in Western culture where the Bible has been implemented, people have been set free. You go to the 1040 window where 95% of the Muslim world exists and you go proclaim the gospel and see how long you last. If you are a practicing homosexual, you go to the 1040 window where 95% of the Muslim world exists and you cry out for homosexual rights and see how long you exist. You'll be thrown off a building. If you, if you were a woman that believes in, in equal pay and equal every, you, you go there and just try to get a driver's license. Try to live without a burqa. This, this is biblical application to nations that transform the world where freedom has been established. This author says, the rest of the Great Commission is only a small reference to individual aspects of the gospel, as I said, but he says the Great Commission mirrors the passage of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but everlasting life. Yes? yes? For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, Right? The intent of the content of the gospel message are comprehensive, addressing the whole world as world and as nations. And the personal salvation of individuals is only an important means to this goal, but never a goal in itself. If the gospel was limited to only individual salvation of men, then we can't find much sense in the words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 18. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. Why would the Lord say that? The individual salvation of men is the same for kings as for common people. Why would the disciples worry about how or what they must say to kings and rulers if if they were only to talk about individual salvation? That's where we got Lex Rex, Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish covenanter. And the king said, I am the head of the church. He said, no, Christ is the head of the church. You come in and you are a subject to Christ just like everybody else. And they considered that treason. And they killed thousands of Scottish covenanters in the grass market in Edinburgh. And that's, they came over here to the United States seeking political asylum, or excuse me, religious freedom And 70% of the Revolutionary War generals were Scottish covenanters because they declared that Christ is king. And you can kill us and you can do whatever you want, but this is what establishes a culture. Somebody's getting robbed. (laughs) Individual salvation is the same for kings and for common people. What is it in the testimony to kings and rulers that would be different in Matthew chapter 10? 
verse 18. The only plausible answer to this question is in the comprehensive nature of the gospel. The fact that the gospel speaks to all of life, and therefore it speaks to every man in a specific area of authority and dominion under God. Kings and rulers have no problems when their subjects are concerned with their personal salvation. The real difficulty lies in telling a king how to rule according to everything I have commanded you. Caesar doesn't like that. This this author shares, we see that Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire not because they preached individual salvation. They weren't the only ones to preach. It is, as a matter of fact, Rome had a special pantheon, all gods, where every new God or Savior was duly registered and adopted in the service of the empire. But Jesus was different. What made him different, and why were the Christians persecuted? Real simple. The answer is, their message was not limited to individual salvation or the personal life of the believer, but was a comprehensive challenge to the empire itself. In the words of the persecutors themselves, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. Let's, let's kill him. It was that comprehensive nature of the gospel demanding the submission of all earthly powers to Jesus that earned the Christians the persecutions. The monk who stood in, 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 in Rome, in the Colosseum, as they were, they were killing Christians, he said, stop it. Stop it. And they killed him. And it so sickened the crowds that that was the end of those things in Rome. You, you stand and you say, this is not how God intended it to be. We don't kill babies in the womb. There aren't 90 different genders. Truth is not relative. There's not social justice. There's justice. You, murder is wrong because God said so. Stealing is wrong because God said so. And your political structure violates stealing and coveting. It, it is not acceptable. But we, we don't know these things. But this is the great commission. Go therefore and teach them everything I've instructed you. If you haven't been taught, you can't teach. We don't put the scriptures up on the screen so you go, oh, that's cool. And then two weeks later, you go, what was it? Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. It equips us to give us a biblical vernacular, gives us a biblical worldview. These are all aspects of the basic tenets of the Christian faith so that you can apply it to every sphere of influence that you've been planted in. I want to share this. This is a picture of the comprehensive nature of the gospel demanding submission of all earthly powers to Jesus. The sweet picture of heavenly salvation never produced such persecutions. The statement of Jesus' authority on the earth over every area of life, including politics and culture, did. And here's a verse I want to read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, and Paul says this to the church at Corinth, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And this, this passage, it looks like it limits the gospel to individual salvation. And as we initially read it, it seems that way. 
But the citation's not complete when you take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. It concludes with, with, uh, with Paul, what he says of the reign of Christ, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So yes, it's individual for us, but it is for the nations. And we are not saved just to be saved, folks. We're not just to raise our hand. God has a higher purpose for us. Apply deliverance and salvation to the whole of creation. That means social, political, economic, world as well. Yes, the verses, the whole creation. I, um, I'll conclude with this. In the same epistle, while explaining the practical implica- implications of the gospel message, Paul also includes the duties of the civil ruler. He must be a servant of God. This very claim was considered treason in the empire. Christians were persecuted for that specific reason, claiming that Christ was a higher power than Caesar. The empire's political constitution, Caesar was God. He couldn't be a deacon of another God. The gospel, however, did encroach on Caesar's realm and requested requested his subjection to Christ and all, including his policies. And Paul is clear here. The gospel he preached was not limited to the salvation of individuals. It did include every power, every authority, including civil powers. And when we fail to make that declaration of the gospel to the whole of life, we only serve those that want the demise of Christianity. The Great Commission says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Disciple the nations. That's the Greek. Disciple the nations. Baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is an enormous, an enormous commission. And quite honestly, it's paralyzing. I look at that and I go, oh, do you understand the swamp in Washington and the swamp in Sacramento? And they're both literally physical swamps. <laughs> the founders, I just... <laughs> And you look and you say, AB 2943, where they now, if, if you have been molested um, and, and you don't want same-sex attraction, but you're underage, you, 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 you can't get paid or remunerated uh, for, for trying to talk somebody out of same-sex attraction. Social engineering. I mean, our, our, our infrastructure is imploding. Uh, our debt is exploding. Uh, we have all kinds of struggles. 30% welfare recipients. Driving down to LA, it was just a cesspool. And, and, but we're going to do some social engineering. Our school systems are terrible. and not, not here in the Conejo. Praise the Lord. We're doing good. But as a state. And the Great Commission is. The church is not to be truncated. This is not the church. That's not the church. The church is go. Disciple the nations. Apply these principles that we have learned through the entirety of the gospel of Matthew that the disciples learned for three and a half years and go apply them. And you go, well, how do I do that? Well, here's the cool thing. Jesus makes it helpful. He says, I'm with you always. We're going to see in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're endued with power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. 
And, and, and I love this one. If any man, just James, if any man lacks wisdom, all he need but do is ask of God. God will give freely to him who asks. Because I've been behind this wooden stand for 25 years, plus or minus. And, and, and the, the, it says you're going to be persecuted and reviled. And, and again, not until I stepped out did I get hit. I stepped in that political arena. And it got ugly, still is. And Pastor Brett and I, when I said, I think I want to run for the state assembly. What does it do? I have no idea. <laughs> I just know we have to do something. And I, I don't know my ear, ear lobe from my elbow in regards to it, but we've got to learn. Study to show yourself approved. I, I, I got to learn. I can't take people where I'm not willing to go myself. I don't have the answers. I don't even know how to educate you and disciple you to disciple the nations. So I'm going to go learn. And we did. Crash course. I've, I've got a master's, almost a PhD now. I've run four elections. I've won three of the four. I'm batting 750. Not bad. But I've got an education. And that education has merited my ability to go up and down the state to speak to other pastors. And when I speak, I step into that room Honestly, I, I, you have the book of who's who, I'm in the book of who's he. But, but when, they, when they say, this is Rob McCoy, he's a pastor of Calvary Chapel, God speak, and he's also a sitting city council member, you can hear an audible, ooh. And I walk up, yeah, that's right. And now with authority, I say, this is how you bridge into that cultural mountain of influence. And they go, wow, I never knew that. I said, it took me a while to get that education. I give it to you for free. I am discipling the nations. So my sphere of influence, and we didn't know what we were doing, but now we know more of what we're doing. And you say, well, pastor, what's my call? Where am I to go there for? Well, bloom where you're planted. We, we didn't have the pieces of the puzzle, but they started to come together the more we engaged. We just go. And then he gave us wisdom. And now, oh, that fits. Oh, that fits. Oh, this. Oh. And you go. You have a sphere of influence. Where do you live? Who do you associate with? What do you connect? And every great journey begins with the end in mind. Every great journey begins with the end in mind. Where are you involved? Are you in economics? Are you in business? Do you, is, is family your sphere of influence? Is education your sphere of influence? Is arts and entertainment or media? Are, are you into politics or religion? Okay, then let's do this. Let's take those spheres of influence and say, the gospel being applied in the entirety of the gospel of Matthew, everything that the disciples were taught was given to me. They were given the commission to go. I'm being given the commission to go. With everything I've learned, how does it apply to the sphere of influence to disciple the nations? What does this sphere look like if everything were applied? What does that, that cultural mountain of influence look like fully under authority of the teachings of Christ? Now you begin with the end in mind. You go, okay, now I've got the vision. For lack of vision, the people perish. Now I've got the vision. How do we get there? Oh, there's a wall there. That's okay. Here's a little crack over here. We'll go through there. Oh, the Republican Party doesn't want you to run. You're an evangelical white pastor in a primarily Hispanic district. Oh, okay, well, I'll still run anyways. Oh, I beat your opponent. Now I'm here. Oh, now I run the election. And the Democrats want to spend $6.3 million. Against you. Oh, okay. Oh, I lost. 650 volunteers. What do we do now? Well, let's run for the office she vacated. Oh, okay, we'll go over here. Oh, I won by 52 votes. What do you call a person who wins by 52 votes? The winner. And then, <laughs> and then you run for re-election, you win by 4,000 plus votes. 
And all of a sudden you're having influence and you're seeing, okay, this is how you do it. Go. Go. But I have to tell you as a pastor, it is so much easier to stay right here and just get you to raise your hand and keep the checks coming. And I'll get really nice buildings and we'll have the air conditioning set lovely and we'll get cushy seats and it'll just be good. Just keep the money coming. As we watch our, our state implode and our county implode and our federal government implode, oh, that's okay, that's okay, that's not our problem. Politics is dirty. And then, where do our kids go to church when they shut us down? They're going to take more and more and more and more, and we don't have answers. And, and this is why Jesus says, if you lack wisdom, ask me. But go, I'm with you. You know what's cool about that? One man and God constitutes a majority. And he hasn't given me a spirit of fear. And I love this. The more I engage in the process and the only weapon the enemy has is fear. And trust me, there are times where you're scared to death. And you just realize, what am I afraid of? I mean, really, what, what is the worst they can do to me? Torture? Trust me, being in politics is torture. I'm used to it. (laughs) Kill me? That's heaven. (laughs) Threaten my family? They get stronger. They've been through it with me. They're like, let's do it, Dad. Michelle's like, I think so. (laughs) No weapon fashion against it. And you know what happens to my kids and my wife and everyone gets stronger. You know what happens to the congregation? We get stronger. We're not afraid anymore. People said your church would decline, giving would go down. That did. Some people left. Okay, more came. And people who came who were like, this church is doing something. And you know what? We're Gideon's army. And we've got to whittle it down to a handful. That's fine. But we're going to go. And 11 guys changed the world. we got a lot more, don't we? Amen? Yeah, okay, clap for that. Folks, you don't have to be afraid because he's with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. He equips us, he empowers us, he teaches us, and why? So that we go. And when you're going, he's with you. And when you're going, he's teaching you. And when you're going, he's empowering you. It is so exciting. Or you just stay here. And complain about the air conditioning. But you know what I'm thrilled about with this new building? It's the first church ever to be put in Dos Vientos in the history of that development. And when we get there, we are going to love them. We're going to bless that community. And they're going to fight us every step of the way until they realize how happy they are we're there. And I I leave you with this last thought. Michelle and I, when I'd first gotten elected, we went to a Christmas party with the council. And we didn't know what to expect. Remember, honey? We were nervous. We're outside. The the mayor at that time was Al Adam. We hadn't met any of the council. And Jackie was their best friend, and they were all close. And here this, however they portrayed me in the media and everything, and we're out front. We just said, Lord, give us a heart to serve them. We, pr- we were praying out front. 
We walk into the house and they're all singing. And we said, we're, we're not even going to say prayers. We're not even going to, we'll get our food last if it's a buffet, so we're not going to threaten them. We're just going to go in and love on them. And we get in there and we get our food last and it is a buffet and we walk real slowly to the outside patio where everyone's seated and we sit down thinking they're already eating and they were like waiting for us. And I, I pick up my fork to like dive in because I've already said my Amish prayer. I'm like ready to dive in. <laughs> and, and one of the council members' spouses said, uh, Mayor, would you mind if I let us in thanks to the Lord? And he said, I think that'd be wonderful. And he says, is it customary to hold hands? I'm like, <laughs> that was my very first act as a councilman was to pray with the entirety of the council and their spouses. And we did. And from that moment on, I've had wonderful relationships with them. And then I leave you with this. When I would have to go to the Ventura County Star, which is not the most conservative publication on the face of the earth. I've run four times for office. First time I was in the, in the primary, I went in and they didn't give me their endorsement. I had to share all my positions. I sat before the editorial board, and they said, ah, no, and they endorsed somebody else. I went in for the general campaign, and they didn't endorse me. I went in for the city council race, and they didn't endorse me. I went back because I'm going, therefore. And I don't care if you close the door. I don't care if you hate me. I'm still going, and I'll go, and I'll go, and I'll go. It's like Groundhog's Day. And I sat down with the editorial board and I said, look, I, already, I know you already have a, a, a date to the dance. I know this seems to you like it's an exercise in futility. Um, you know all my positions. I've been here three times before. I'm just going to say this to you. Um, you know, they used to call the city council the Tuesday night fights. And now they're calling it peace in the valley. I'm not saying I did it, but I'm the only new one elected to that place. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, so... I think we're doing a good job, but thank you for meeting with me yet again, and I know you guys got a tough decision on your hands, but it's been, I've learned so much from you, and, and I, I know you guys have endeavored with me, and God bless you guys, and I left. A week and a half later, Ventura County Star, it used to be called, the city council used to be called Tuesday Night Fights, and now it's Peace in the Valley, and we attribute that to Rob McCoy and Al Adams, who we both endorse for the city council. I'm like... <laughs> They're going to realize that what you do is good. They just don't want it at first. And you know why they're turned off to Christians? Because we just do this. It's time to go. You've got a sphere of influence. Start with the end in mind. Ask for wisdom and watch what God does. And may he richly bless you.